0: Hello everybody, I'm Jill and it's such a privilege to be invited to bring some really important parts of the Bible uh, to you this evening and as we gather around uh, some really important words from Romans chapter 12. You'll know that mostly over this year we're following the big story of the Bible, but there's been Easter and then last week and this week some some thinking about how we can be God's people here in this place at this time. And so Rod's asked me to, to preach about Romans 12, 1 and 2. I wanted to pop that little part of chapter 3 in for a particular reason, which I'll say in a moment too. So we had quite a lot of uh, sermons about Romans during last year and the year before. I think we've done part of it along the way and we got to the end of chapter 11 and at the end of chapter 11 there is a wonderful um, doxology and this is what it says. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Will you pray with me as I begin? Our wise and glorious God of this doxology, you are kind and merciful and you are with us here tonight. I pray that my words and the thoughts of all our hearts would do you honour and that you might help us to become more Christ-like with each passing day. Amen. <clears throat> so the beginning of our little passage here says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Now, I used to work at a church with a very lovely colleague who's called Morgan, and I always can remember Morgan saying, That therefore? What's that therefore?" And it's a really good question because it's a it's a kind of a, a, an indication that there's a change if you're musical it's like a cadence point it's like a change in key up until now through the rest of the 11 chapters there's been quite a lot of theological teaching <coughs> excuse me about what god is like There <coughs> we are will be right no, no I think it's all right now thank you <laughs> a lot of theological teaching about what god is like and what god's done First in chapters 1 and 2 and the first part of 3, after Paul has told the Roman uh, people that he's writing to that he wishes he was physically there with them in Rome and don't we understand that at the moment as we have friends in far-flung places we can't be with. After that, he's taught that each of us deserves only to face God's righteous anger. There's a picture of totally depraved living in chapter 1, a terrible downward spiral of sin. So that's chapters 1, 2, and 3. In the second part of chapter 3, the part we had in our readings, it's because it's where God, uh, Paul explains that God himself, in the person of Jesus, stepped into that world of sin, in his death, becoming a sacrifice, and a substitutionary sacrifice, and making it possible for us to become righteous in God's sight if we put our faith in Jesus and trust in his promises. That goes to the end of chapter 4. Now, here's a funny thing, because chapters 5 to eight, to 8 have some of the richest parts of Scripture, and I'm going to say it in about a sentence and a half, deliberately just pointing out the biggest things. But we see that the consequence of becoming righteous is that we can become free from the power of sin and death and look forward to a certain future free from that power um, where we will be glorified with Christ forever. That nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that none, none of it is because we deserve it. It only comes from God's grace and mercy towards us. No wonder Romans is a much loved letter. And then for a few chapters Paul talks about the particular place of the people of Israel in all of this. And there's a beautiful and grave discussion of the kindness and the sternness of God, the seriousness with which he takes our sin and rebellion, and how crucial it is to remain trusting in Jesus and the beautiful mercy of God. That's what what comes before the therefore. So therefore, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of what we've just looked at, in view of the mercy of God, And he's saying, my dear ones, seriously, listen to me. You must keep this all in mind and this is how you must live your life. In view of God's mercy. And that, of course, shows itself most clearly at the cross. In the death and the resurrection of Jesus, particularly in the death of Jesus, it changes everything for the world and for us. And for the next few chapters, almost to the end of the letter, Paul will then write about what Christian living and witness should be like in response to the mercy of God. And he says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In the Old Testament, as we've been learning in the last few weeks, only the priests could offer a sacrifice, and it was a deeply holy and privileged position. But it was Jesus himself who offered his body as the ultimate living sacrifice. Before it happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, he looked it in the eye, understood what it would mean, felt the anguish of the weight of that, and chose to do the will of God and walk into that Friday and all that it would mean. Think about what it cost him to be humiliated, whipped, hung on that terrible cross, a device that was conceived to be as cruel as it could be, in agony of body and mind, and left there to die, abandoned by his followers, separated even from his heavenly Father, carrying the weight of the sin of the whole world. They're words we say, but we will never understand the depth of what that really means. That's a sacrifice. So I think that for us to even be included in that language is an incredible thing, to be allowed to offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God. But we're not just allowed, it's what we must do. Jesus could be a sacrifice because he was the sinless one. We can do so only because of him, through the mercy of God. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That's how we can be a living sacrifice because while we were dead, we've been called into life. And a living sacrifice is a good way of remembering that it's ongoing. It's day after day for the rest of our life. And it's our true and proper worship because, of course, it is. It's only what God deserves. How could we possibly give less? We worship God with all that we have and all that we are as an offering because we saw the sacrifice of Jesus and he alone makes real change possible. What does it look like to be in Christ like this? I found a quote from John Stott. When we meet some people, we know immediately and instinctively that they are different. We're anxious to learn their secret. It's not the way they dress or talk or behave, although it influences these things. It's not that they've affixed a name tag to themselves and proclaimed themselves the adherent of a particular religion or ideology. It's not even that they have a strict moral code which they faithfully follow. It is that they know Jesus Christ and that he is a living reality to them. They dwell in him and he dwells in them. He is the source of their life, and it shows in everything they do. I wonder if you can think of particular people that you know, who, you, where you can see that very clearly. In this month's Eternity magazine, there's an article about a woman called Mel, who I know because she sat beside me through a Kairos program at Emu J- Plains Jail a couple of years ago. Mel was in jail for fraud. You all read about her crime when it was committed. I can tell you. We never ask why the women are in jail, but sometimes they really want to tell us. I clearly remember the change that came over her in the course of the four days of the Kairos uh, program as Mel began to understand forgiveness and the meaning of giving her life to Jesus. In this month's eternity, her story is told, and she says this, I was a compulsive liar, I was lying all the time about anything and everything just to get out of trouble. The thought of me letting someone down or the thought of me getting into trouble but for doing the wrong thing, I couldn't bear it, so it was easier to lie. Giving her life to Jesus meant a real change in who she is. And people around her can see the changes. And that's a wonderful thing to witness. I want to say something about this verse, the fact that it says presenting your bodies... As a living sacrifice of course as paul is saying offer yourself your whole self all that you are and our bodies are a huge part of that and there are words that paul could have used that don't connote particularly bodies but this one does what's in our hearts will often find a way to express them itself through what our body does it can be a source of great goodness or not in the Syrian city of Homs, there's a pastor. His name is Mufid. He did his Masters of Theology in Egypt. He's a really, really bright man who would just love to continue digging and delving into the scriptures and thinking about not only theology, but the way that it's, it needs to be expressed in his country of Syria. He longed to do more study. In the middle of the war, when Homs was being absolutely flattened by bombs, right in the middle of that time, Langham Partnership was gifted a particular scholarship for a Syrian pastor. And Riyad Kassis, who Ian mentioned before, who's the head of scholars, knew exactly who he wanted to give it to. And he phoned Pastor Mufid and said, I have some wonderful news enough money has been given and I want to offer you a scholarship that you can go and take your family for four years to Scotland to a university where you can study exactly what you've been longing to do and Pastor Mufid said, I need a bit of time to think about it but he only took an hour and he rang back and he said, no, I can't go I can't leave my people God has given me these people to minister to in this place in this time now. He needed to stay. What a sacrifice that is. It's a huge sacrifice. Why would he do that? Because he knew that being faithful to the calling that he believed that he has as pastor to God's people even in such a scary place and time far outweighed his own individual ambitions. And I saw a photograph of the enormous Christmas tree that that the the building had gone but they put a huge Christmas tree in the middle of the bombed out square in Homs that Christmas. But so much sin can also be connected with the use of the body. It can be used to abuse and to hurt and to dishonour. You only have to read the newspapers every single day. It's practically the main thing that's been in all our papers, isn't it? Tragically, we've even seen recently terrible and often secret sin in the scandalous acts of Christian leaders, very famous ones, often the same ones who've taken the high moral ground on other issues, which has caused untold pain and distress and often the loss of faith in people, who've been damaged by it. reminds me of the warning that Jesus gave in Matthew 18, beware those who cause one of my little ones to stumble, Better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be cast into the depths of the sea. It's really serious. What we do with our bodies, the way we treat other people, is really important. There are high stakes. People see what we do, even when we don't realise it. Whether we want it or not, the way we live will have an impact on the way that people conceive of God. So Paul then goes on with his instructions in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, good, pleasing and perfect will. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking about this sometimes over the course of history when the church has said we won't conform to the culture around us. They've done some very odd things. I don't know if you've seen um, Babette's Feast, the the film of Babette's Feast. It's a Christian community uh, in a very cold place, but it's an austere and cold version of Christianity too, in a small village on the coast of Jutland in 19th century Denmark. No pleasure of any kind was allowed. No tasty food, no bright colours, no walking quickly, no laughter. Very, very cold and austere. doesn't stay like that all the way through. Spoiler alert. Also, go look at the movie. My mum used to tell me that when she was a little girl in Eastwood in the 1930s, her great-uncle was the minister of their Methodist church. He was a bit of a character. He bought something for the parsonage um, to gather in the teenage, particularly the teenage boys in the area, Um, so that they'd connect with the church. It was called a Bob's Table, a bit like billiards. And he bought it and put it in the parsonage. And it was a scandal. He nearly lost his job. It was nearly as bad as dancing. (laughs) And we had an American friend who was from the Southern Baptist Church, and he used to say of his early church memories, as long as you remember this, never smoke, never chew, and never get with girls that do. That was the most important thing that you needed to be to be a Christian in your area. Oh, my gosh, is that what God is saying? How did Jesus live? He ate and drank and I'm sure he laughed loudly and we know that he sang not only with his disciples and followers but he did, he gathered and met and enjoyed hospitality with outsiders, with those that others looked down on. We went somewhere once and we met a wonderful man whose ministry was with the smokers. He didn't smoke. Oh, maybe he did. Maybe he'd actually taken it up again. And he used to... He was in a little town in Tasmania, and he said, I just look around, I see all the smokers standing outside everywhere and there's not a Christian among them. So I figure I'm going to go out there and be with the smokers. And we often think Jesus would have been with the smokers. Don't you reckon? I don't think he'd have been smoking. But he wouldn't have seen them as beyond the pale for friendship. It was the self-righteous hypocrites who he had the harshest words for. I remember those um bangles, you know, those what would Jesus do? Did any of you ever have those? I was a bit kind of old for those when they came out, but they were wonderful. WWJD, what would Jesus do? So every time you had to make a decision, you'd look at your bangle and you'd think, Well, what would Jesus do? I actually think there's a really, you know, there's a place for that. We forget to ask ourselves that question so often. We get distracted away from what God would want us to do. And what that is, is to make us more like Jesus. So do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. The world can also be translated this age. Don't conform to the pattern of this age, this culture right now, the messy bit in the middle between the good creation and the glorious future. If you were here last week, remember we talked about that. And it also means of this particular age right now. In the Message Bible translation, Eugene says, Eugene Peterson says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. It's good, isn't it? Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. So easy to do that. Little by little, if we don't pay attention, small decision by small decision, eventually we're not different to those around us at all. And I've been thinking a lot about how do we conform to the pattern of 2021 in Australian culture? How do I? Well, first I think in order to answer this, it's important to take a critical look at our culture. If it's just the wartiest women and you never really look at it, you don't even, this is you're not conscious of this at all. But if we do have a look, we'll see that ours is a culture of individual over community, one where my truth and your truth won't necessarily be the same thing. It's a culture where stating that we disagree with something someone is doing is tantamount to attacking their whole self, where people assume that they they must be affirmed and will take great offence if they're not. There's great suspicion of anyone who adheres to groups, to a religion or a philosophy in particular, and yet there's a longing for transcendence and belonging. So, it's a very strange culture, isn't it? It's a culture of speed of light changes, the loss of privacy, long held moral codes, questioned and sometimes often abandoned. It can be a perplexing and sometimes frightening world. If we're not careful, we can just be swept along in it all, not even wondering how we or it could be different. And there's a million ways this can work out in practice. And let me tell you that in the next few things I say, I am speaking to me just as much as to anybody else. Rod's talked to us in the past about addiction to phone screens and to social media, picking up your phone first thing in the morning as soon as you open your eyes and following the agenda that you find there. What would Jesus do? Think about the bangle. Who would he want to be with first thing in the morning? We can let our concentration span become limited by the sound bites and the headlines and forget to think deeply and wisely about important things. We can be swept along in the tide of public opinion for or against someone and find ourselves thinking and saying things that don't do us credit or the credit to the person that we claim to serve. We can allow our political differences to push us into corners and compromise any commitment we would have to relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We can campaign on issues, forgetting that issues are real people. I've been thinking all week about Rod saying, nothing is theoretical. It's such an important phrase. What we think of as issues may be to do with gender, sexual orientation, to do with things like abortion, infertility, medically assisted dying. Each one of those and many other things entail real people's lives, real grief, real pain that can go on and on. What would Jesus do into that world? What did he do in his world he listened he really listened one of my favorite moments in the bible is even though he's on a he's busy on his way to heal Jairus's daughter well they you know heading in that direction the woman with the flow of blood touches the hem of his garment then it says he called her daughter and brought her around in front of him and she told him the whole story who wants to hear the whole story you know Jesus wanted to hear the whole story What a wonderful thing. He listened. He was all about the important things. Whoever he was with, he saw the person in front of him. He loved them to the point of shedding tears over Jerusalem, didn't he? We can use the resources of the earth as though they're of very little matter, piling up the plastics, not heeding or caring when we hear warnings of climate change damage to us and especially to our Pacific neighbours. What would Jesus do about that? God created this beautiful world and he didn't create it to be destroyed by us. We can imagine that our money is our own and that we can choose to spend it however we like. We can be so concerned with our own financial security that we certainly don't have enough to be generous or we can spend like there's no tomorrow and, you know, middle-of-the-night internet purchases, I'm speaking it to you. Um, You know, those sorts of things, that can happen the way we look, we use our money. I was a regular reader of a certain kind of beautiful home magazine for quite a long time until I realised it was making me really discontented and I was beginning to believe the lie that the stuff they were peddling would make me happy and I just had to stop because I figured out it just wasn't doing me any good at all. What would Jesus do? Would he want us to believe the lie of consumerism? And, you know, then it... It it grows on itself, and we can forget God altogether in the everyday of life. In fact, we might as well be thinking of ourselves as functionally as atheists, forgetting to even look to see where God might be, to talk to him or listen to hear what he might be saying. We can leave our Bibles unread. You can get to the end of maybe even a week and think, when did I last think about God? You know, And, and I think this builds and builds. We can turn away when someone says, what did you do on the weekend? And tell them every other thing we did. Tell them we went grocery shopping, but not tell them we went to church because it's kind of awkward. No, Paul says, resist this. Resist conforming to the culture that you're in. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put your mind to the important things. Pay attention to... God and to who is in front of you remember what's precious and treat it as precious and as you do your mind will be transformed and Christ likeness we pray will follow that what would Jesus do little decisions matter Rod likes the word counterformed rather than transformed because he says transformed can sound as though it just happens like that and now I am transformed where counterformed is a word that helps us to remember that this is the little by little, day by day, decision by decision changes until we are attuned to seeing God everywhere and then we will be able to test and approve what God's will is if we don't know God well enough to even know what he would think then how would we think we'd be able to know what his will would be for us? Jesus has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to prod and urge and help us in this process. If the Holy Spirit isn't at work in us, changing us day by day, we'll never know God well enough to know what he wants from us. This is really hard, isn't it? And it's messy. And we often get it wrong. I know I do. But we've been given each other to each other as well. And then that helps We can do this together. And grace is there for us when we get it wrong and then we give it another go. If we're to become more like Jesus individually and as a church, we must pray and talk and know each other well enough to hold each other to account. We must be kind to one another too. In the rest of Romans, Paul will go on to say much more about what our lives should look like as followers of Jesus. 38 years ago, last March... Ian and I had part of Romans 12 read as the reading for our one of the readings for our wedding. It's funny because we also had "Be Thou My Vision," so we feel very at home this evening. <laughs> but the words we have are words about love, um, honouring one another above ourselves, about being sincere, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, keeping keeping spiritual fervour alive, showing hospitality. Weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. They're really important things, aren't they? And they're not just suggestions. They're ways of becoming more Christ-like. And 38 years later, we're still trying to get there. There are many more instructions, too, about how to live a life worthy of being the people of God, representing him in the world, being Jesus to the world. But, you know, I'm also aware that if we're not careful and clear... All that I've just said can sound like an extra burden on people who are already burdened. Pull your socks up, get your act into gear, be better. Don't do what you naturally do. But then, look at Jesus, listen to his words. This is the one that we're to become like And he said things like, and he's saying it to us and not only to the people we want to minister to, but hear it for yourself. I can give you living water. Drink. He said, I have come to give you life in all its fullness. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." As we're being transformed, as the Holy Spirit is at work within us, and we are being transformed, we are being loved and given gifts that we could not have imagined. Don't be fearful about taking these steps each day. And like new clothes that actually fit and don't rub or itch or cut into you, there are gifts we don't even know we need until God gives them to us. Do you remember... Last week, there were four important things God called... uh, God... Well, yes, God. Rod called us to... (laughs) Four important things that Rod called us to think about as a church, as a community. And they were growing in understanding. And as he said that, he said, and that's complex and we need to listen and we need to really hear who's around us, understanding deeply. He said, wisdom in our actions... Compassion in care, faithfulness in witness. And then Gordon said, and we've got to trust one another as well. Really important and and powerful words. But I just think those four things are the things that we need to put up on the wall somewhere growing in understanding, wisdom in our actions, compassion in care, faithfulness in witness. What a project to embark upon! What a way for our church to be transformed from and not conform to the culture in an uncritical way, but to be transformed, keeping ourselves and each other accountable as we seek to grow in these things. Let's not avoid the hard issues. Let's have conversations about the hard things, the ones where we might disagree, but let's work out ways not to hurt one another when we disagree, as together we seek to discern and understand what God's will is his good, pleasing and perfect will here as his people in Springwood and in the Blue Mountains in 2021 and in the years to come. Amen.